and welcome to the fourth episode of the Totally Football Show presents Zonal Marking. And this, you'll probably already know by now, is our six-part summer series to coincide with the release of Zonal Marking, a book written by our very own Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ian. Michael, what's the full title of the book? It's Zonal Marking, The Making of Modern European Football. It certainly is. It's out already. You can read it right now, and I highly recommend you do. It's, it's very, very good. In a nutshell, um, for anyone who hasn't listened to one of these, what is it? It's a book about uh, the difference in style between Europe's major footballing countries. Yes, it's all of that and more. It's like a history gap filler, I think. You know, nice. If there's... There's little bits that you didn't know about. It fills in the game, much the same way that the mixer did, I thought, but for the Premier League. Excellent. Get them as a pair. Uh, We're joined by Tom Williams, um, and we're going to be discussing Jose Mourinho's European Cup winning Porto side of 2004. Hello, Tom. Hello, Ian. You must remember that Mourinho Porto side very well. I do. I just remember how, um, how iconoclastic Mourinho was and... It's hard to think now, but there was a time before Jose Mourinho had come into our lives. And that first season, which was the 03 04 season that we're going to talk about in some detail, was the season when he sort of exploded across the European football consciousness. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. So, yeah, very vivid memories of that season. Yeah, it was exciting. We hadn't tired of it. Um, But it wasn't that it galvanised Portuguese football so much because Portuguese football was already in a good place, wasn't it, Michael? Yeah, it was. I mean,. Regardless of what was happening with Porto, they were hosting the European Championships that summer. And that was a really big deal for Portuguese football, particularly because they'd seen off uh, the rival bit of Spain to get the hosting to that tournament. Portugal proposed a joint bid with Spain. Spain rejected it to go it alone. And then Portugal beat them. And until I was researching the book, I didn't realise what a big thing that was for Portuguese football. And for Portugal as a country, obviously Spain is their only neighbours and, and massive rivals so there was that there was the rise of Porto we had the gradual rise of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo who would obviously become the best player in Europe at one point so yeah it, it went from uh, I mean when you look at the history of Portugal they'd only qualified for a major tournament three times in the 20th century and then suddenly they become you know a serious European force at club level and at international level but you'd had the original golden generation of players that come through together but had all sort of dissipated across the continent yeah, I mean, um, you know, 2004 was a funny time because they were almost caught between two generations. The Rui Costa and Figo were not at their peak. I think probably 2000 was their collective peak. And the likes of Ronaldo and Simao were probably two or three years away from their peak. So, um, of course, Portugal got to the final on home soil. But it was a, a funny kind of balancing act for, for Scolari between the old generation and the new generation and this kind of Porto side who, you know, contained a, a few players in, in their late 20s, but players who had, you know, almost emerged overnight to become regarded as top class players, someone like Carvalho, for example. Well, yeah. And, and Tom, this is key, isn't it? Because we go back through that team and we will do that in a moment. And a lot of the names are very familiar. But at that time, maybe Deco you'd heard of, but certainly not so so many others. Uh, do, you, do you think they're the most sort of underrated team to have won the cup most unfancied team to have won the cup yeah I mean I think if you look at the Champions League era there's there's no one who comes close I mean perhaps Borussia Dortmund beating Juventus in 97 uh, that was a big surprise Liverpool when they came from 3-0 down to beat AC Milan in 2005 I mean that was an incredible AC Milan team you know no one was backing Liverpool before that but strongly argue a team with Igor Biscan and Milan Barosh is uh, yes certainly lest we forget Jimmy Traore oh, um, how could we but yeah in terms of in terms of underdogs I think Paul 
Porto are by far the biggest underdogs to have won the Champions League. And, and I think looking back at the, the wider history of the European Cup, you probably have to go back to Stoy Bucharest beating Barcelona on penalties in 1986 for, for a comparable shock. Now, because of everything you know about Mourinho and everything you know about Mourinho's sides, if I hadn't read your book, Michael, I would now be going, yeah, they're a bit negative, weren't they? But I have read your book and actually they weren't. Yeah, it was a fun thing to research. I mean, I'd always kind of had it in my mind that they were a little bit more attack-minded than people remember them as. Because I remember watching the one of the games in the two-legged tie against Lyon. It was really open and entertaining and, and they were good in that. And so, yeah, going back and, and researching it properly kind of confirmed my suspicions, although I didn't realise the extent to which Mourinho had arrived and promised to play attacking football. He made a big thing of that at his introductory press conference at Porto. As outras equipas vão levar massacres que nem respiram. Tenho certeza que no próximo ano nós vamos ser campeões nacionais. Agora, agora. And a good stat I found, or I should say that actually Duncan Alexander found for me, um, was that in this Champions League run of the 13 games, Porto dominated possession in 10 of them. And the only exceptions were three games where they'd taken the lead very early, they you know, had license to play on the counter-attack. But otherwise, they, they dominated. They dominated home and away against Manchester United, home and away against Real Madrid. And of course, we kind of take that for granted, the fact that they won the competition. But for an unfancied side like Porto from a, a minor European league to go to the Bernabeu, to go to Old Trafford and dominate possession, um, you know, in itself was an achievement, albeit not the kind of achievement that Mourinho would in later years consider something worth uh, talking about in terms of possession. Now Mourinho as a manager I don't think we need to go over the whole interpreter story anymore because everyone knows that bit but he started uh, Liera uh, was his yep. first club um, and, and got them to a very respectable position. Then he has a very very short spell at Benfica that doesn't work Coxie. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of politics in Portuguese football at this stage. And Benfica, to be honest, were a bit of a shambles, you know, having been, you know, I still think of Benfica as the most illustrious club in Portuguese football, but they were really suffering at this point. So I think Mourinho did well to get out of it when he did, to be honest. Yeah, he was only there a very, very short time. Then he gets the Porto job and he announces himself and the impact is almost immediate. Yeah, he came in at a difficult time, um, but he steered Porto to the UEFA Cup by the end of his first half season, which, of course, they went on to win the next year. Um, but from his first full season, they're just immediately a really well-organised side and win the league. The same year they won the UEFA Cup. So he immediately transformed the club. And he was, uh, you know, going back and looking at him, he was a genuinely really inspiring personality. You know, it was still quite unusual for someone to have come from such a kind of humble footballing background um, and to be such a top-class manager at such a young age. So, um, you know, younger listeners might be surprised, but he was actually very charismatic, very charming, and, uh, and yeah, probably the superstar of this Porto side in a way. Well, he looked like uh, a young Alan Alder. He had all that dark hair and Mediterranean good looks. He didn't look like a kind of frazzled head teacher in a failing secondary school. <laughs> it was it was a different time. Uh, the first time, Tom, that people will have really started to notice Mourinho, I think, in this country and certainly in the one north of the border, is that UEFA Cup final in 2003 against Celtic. Um, I, I haven't really got a Scottish team that I like. Well, Sterling Albion, they were nice to me when I did a story up there. So I haven't got any sort of favourites up there, but I cannot ever remember watching a game where I've been more angered by any one team or more like wronged on behalf of Celtic as I felt that night. Um, remind me what Mourinho's Porto did that night. 
Yeah, I mean, as you say, it was our first exposure to Mourinho as fans of British football, and it was also our first exposure to some of the, shall we say, less pleasant aspects of his management. Not that you can you can blame him for everything, but I mean, you know, a, a fantastically exciting match. Porto winning three two in extra time, twice going ahead, twice being pegged back by uh, Henrik Larsson goals, uh, and then getting uh, a late winner with five minutes to play. Marius tem a desmarcação do Marco Ferreira, se a bola chega lá é um grande passo, vai Marco Ferreira, Douglas, Derlei, passa no gol do Porto, atira Derlei, é gol! But certainly in, in the UK, all the talk after the match was about Porto's time-wasting, which was pretty blatant. You had Mourinho telling the ball boys to slow down when it came to throwing the ball back on the pitch. You had Vitor Baia, you know, the Porto goalkeeper, rolling around, clutching his shin for minute after minute. And, you know, that was that was one of the first things that, that Martin O'Neill wanted to talk about after the game. And I read an interview with him uh, recently, uh, O'Neill, and he was saying that he still hasn't forgiven Mourinho and never will. <laughs> you know, that is... That is you know how how sour a taste uh, it, it left in his mouth, but uh, yeah, I, I recommend the highlights of that game because it was a really really excited match. And the dark arts were to characterise Mourinho over the course of his career, which is you know still going and all that. Um, what what some of the other things that he employed during that game that um, that got everyone's goat? Yeah, a lot of niggly fouls. They weren't violent. I don't think there was any kind of two-footed tackles, but it was just some very cynical fouls. Um, one good statistic I learned from that season is that. In 30 league appearances, Deco got booked 15 times. And Deco's their silky playmaker, the guy who was, you know... Notoriously violent. Deco. Yeah, and to get booked one in two matches is quite an achievement. But um, you can't really get footage of those kind of things. But I dare say, if you look at you know the tapes back, it would just be cynical fouls and tactical fouls rather than anything actually uh, violent. There isn't actually a massive exodus, as you might expect. They only lose one player, Helder Postiga, who uh, doesn't exactly go on to set the turf alight at White Hart Lane. Mourinho's still there as well. No one's got him. Let's have a look at that team, Michael, starting with the goalkeeper. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I remember about this team when I first came across them is just marvelling with a, a mate of mine who was also a big football fan at the time, just what good names they had. It's really pleasant names to say. In goal, you've got Vita Bayer, and then you've got Paulo Ferreira, George Costa, Ricardo Carvalho, and Nuno Valente. Just beautiful names. And Nuno Valente in particular. I and mean, that's the name that for is a lovely. troubadour, isn't it? And, and going back and watching this, it's the most organised back four I've seen. The way they played the offside track was incredible. It was, you know, like George Graham's Arsenal, which I know people kind of think is, uh, you know, it was a negative team, it was a defensive team, but they held a really high defensive line at a time when not many teams were doing that. This wasn't the Guardiola era. This was, you know a period of quite defensive football, but they were playing really high up the pitch and, and stepped up so effectively they to catch teams offside. They never flustered, did they? No, they're very calm, very cool and calm. And to go back a little bit to what we said about um, one of their dark arts, they did a couple of things well. One was when they hadn't played the offside trap well and someone was offside, they stepped forward and put their arms up so convincingly to get opponents caught offside, which is like it happened consistently throughout the Champions League run. And another thing, I think there was nine players by the end of their semi-final second leg who were yellow card away from missing the final and none of them did. So they just did this rotational fouling so well and the defenders were very good at that in particular. That is absolutely... I mean, that's just good admin, isn't it? Yeah, very good. Excellent admin. Um, Ferreira and Carvalho, of course, were to join Mourinho at Chelsea for a combined fee of, I think, about 40 million quid, wasn't it? A lot of money for two defenders at the time, yeah. Um, What was in front of them? 
So in front of him, you had Costinha, who was kind of playing the holding role. Manish, who was a little bit more expressive with his passing. And then Pedro Mendes, who I guess was the most functional player in that midfield. Another one who came to England, of course, uh, also to Tottenham. Um, but they, they played as a, a quite a tight, narrow three-man midfield. They're predominantly defensive players, I'd say. All three of them, albeit Manish, could play football. Um, and they just protected the defence really well. And then uh, you have this interesting national split because so far everyone you've mentioned has been Portuguese. Yeah, that was the the nice thing about this team because everyone at this time always said the thing Portugal are lacking is a, a real top-class centre-forward and you saw that with this Porto team. The goalkeeper, defence and midfield were all Portuguese. Then up front you usually had two Brazilians in Derlai and Carlos Alberto and then the guy linking them was Deco. So the guy linking the Portuguese and the Brazilians was a Brazilian-born player who went on to represent Portugal. So that was quite a neat split. And then the alternative up front was uh, Benny McCarthy, who had a really good impact in the uh, second round win over at Manchester United. Yes, absolutely. And and yet, the real superstar here, Tom, is the manager. Because invariably after the games, particularly the Manchester United game at Old Trafford, we're all talking about Mourinho again and the uh, start of a trend that would last a very long time in British media. Yeah, it's like I was saying before. I mean, it was, you know, Mourinho just explodes upon the scene. I mean, you know, I, I can't remember having had any kind of inkling of him at the time and then suddenly there he is and, and you couldn't take your eyes off him. You know, there's this young, good-looking, charismatic, you know, sharply-dressed guy who has no qualms about goading his opponents after impressive results, um, and who who produces the goods on the pitch. So he was, you know, a real a real sort of tour de force. Um, and I think it perhaps reflects on the fact that this Porto team, although it had a lot of, you know, fantastic players, I mean, you know, Deco chief among them, it didn't have any superstars. And that's partly, I think, because they already had one sitting in the dugout, uh, because every time Mourinho opened his mouth, it was gold. It was around about this time that Brian Clough, uh, shortly before his death, uh, was quoted as saying, I like the look of that Mourinho. He reminds me of me. Mm. <laughs> nice. Let's have a look at Porto's Champions League campaign. It starts slowly with a draw at Partizan Belgrade and then comes a home defeat against Real Madrid. Michael, there's, uh, there's an interesting quote from Mourinho in your book about that, which is also kind of revealing. Yeah, so he was basically talking uh, before the Real Madrid game about how Porto would have to play to stop Real Madrid. And he went through and he listed all Real Madrid's best players and all their strengths and says what you need to do to stop all those players. And then at the end of it, he says, so to stop them, we'd need 13 or 14 players, which is, you know, it was kind of a joke, but it kind of says something about his logic that he's he's almost working backwards. You have to stop them, you have to stop them. And he basically doesn't have, you know, any attackers. He doesn't have any players left to attack. And that's what Mourinho's philosophy was all about, basically stopping the opponents. And I think when him and Benitez came to England, they really changed English football with their focus on scouting the opposition and stopping the opposition more than necessarily trying to play football themselves. And of course, in Mourinho's first season, you get that leak of scouting notes uh, looking ahead to a game against Newcastle. And they're fantastic. The level of detail is incredible. And, uh, and of course, they're put together by... Uh, Andre Vias both. Yes, yeah. it's all there. It all comes together. So Porto battle through the group stage. Home and away wins against uh, Didier Drogba's Marseille and a home win over Partizan and then a respectable draw with Real Madrid. So we obviously got there in the end. Um, 
But then they really come to life in that knockout stage. And it's interesting that this is the first Champions League for uh, for a few seasons without a second group stage. God, do you remember how dull that was? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, people might be surprised if they don't remember this far back for us to be talking about this. But that was a big thing at the time. People become really sick of this second oh. group stage of the Champions League, which just seemed to produce mind-numbingly dull matches and a really predictable set of teams going through to the quarterfinals. So when they went back to just having a second round and it being, you know, to the knockout stage uh, straight away, I think the fact that there were a couple of surprise results, you know, Porto getting past Manchester United, Deportivo getting past Juventus, in hindsight, maybe they were just the better size and it wasn't anything to do with, you know, the uh, the change in format. But at the time, it felt like a little bit of a... There was suddenly a freshness to the Champions League and it was just exciting to have different teams in the quarterfinals. Yeah, that two-group stage thing, that was so boring that that was even boring on Championship Manager 0102. <laughs> you, you just see it as a chore. <laughs> <laughs> the benchmark for absolutely everything. Um, the second round victory, though, over Manchester United, that's the one that everyone remembers here, Tom. Tell me what happened. So that's the birth of the Mourinho legend in this country, really. United are reigning Premier League champions, entering a period of transition as it would transpire but we weren't really to know that at the time and Porto win the first leg 2-1 Benny McCarthy with a fantastic brace an incredible uh, soaring header for the winner and then in stoppage time Roy Keane gets sent off very slyly treading on Vitor Bayer very lightly it clearly didn't hurt him but as we saw in the previous season's UEFA Cup final Vitor Bayer is not a man who needs a second invitation to ride around in mock agony so even though they've got the away goal, Keane's going to be out for the second leg. That puts a bit of a you know extra blot on proceedings. And and, and Ferguson comes out after the game and says, "Oh, I, I think the you know I think the the ref was a bit zealous in in sending Keane off." That's all that Mourinho needs. It's not true that the Portuguese player is a an actor. So what is the problem? A cultural problem? A result problem, I think. So he bites. I understand why he. Ferguson is a bit emotional. You'd be sad if your team gets as clearly dominated by opponents who've been built on 10% of the budget. And at the time, you're thinking, who is this guy? Like, who is this guy? Because in, in this country, we'd not really heard of him. And this wasn't how people spoke to Sir Alex Ferguson at this point. So you've already got this needle in the build-up to the return leg. United go ahead in the return leg through Paul Scholes. Scholes then scores a second goal that's incorrectly ruled out for offside, which I think, again, ties in with what Michael was saying about not just the... Um, you know, the tightness of that Porto offside trap, but how good they were at codding the officials into thinking there had been offsides when there weren't. As things stand, United uh, are due to go through on the away goals rule. Then Porto get a free kick late in the game, which Benny McCarthy takes. Tim Howard spills it. I think having watched it back this morning, it looks like he's worried he's about to clatter into his own post. So he sort of drops the ball. Costinha sweeps home the rebound. Now or never for Porto. It's McCarthy... It's a good save by Howard. It's been turned in by Costinha. Last minute. And it could be the last minute of Manchester United's European season. Jose Mourinho may well have the last word. Mourinho sets off on that famous sprint down the Old Trafford touchline. Coattails flapping behind him. United are out. Porto into the quarterfinals. And the star is born. So if Tim Howard had just crashed into the post and kept hold of the ball. Would, would Mourinho have ever got where he got? Well, yeah, it's one of those uh, flip-reverse-it moments, yeah. I think it's known in this studio. Um, I mean, yes, he probably would. Yeah, really, I, really good football manager. Yeah, I think he was clearly on the rise. But yeah, it does come down to small moments. And that was, you know, that I think every side that wins the European Cup tends to have a 
a moment where it could go either way. And uh, and that was Porto's moment. And they go into the quarterfinals and, and there's a strong argument that they're still the rank outsiders here. But they are pretty comfortable over two legs against Leon, which is the kind of thing you say now and you think, well, I'd expect them to be. But this Leon side were really good. Yeah, so this was midway through Leon's seven in a row and they were a serious force. Maybe never showed it as much as they should have uh, in the Champions League. But, I mean, it was 4-2 on aggregate in this uh in this tie, which I don't think really does justice to how comfortable Porto were. They won the first leg 2-0 and then they went away to Lyon and went ahead within five minutes. So Lyon needed four goals at that point. So the rest of it was quite open and Lyon dominated, but Porto were pretty comfortable against uh, a really good footballing team. And then down to the final four and what a final four as well. Chelsea, Monaco, Porto and Deportivo. Tom, that's generally not the final four of Champions League that you'd you'd anticipate. No, um, I think probably unquestionably the most remarkable semi-final lineup that we've seen. Uh, One previous European Cup win between the four teams, which was Porto's in 1987. And I'm fairly sure, although I say this having done zero research uh, on this, that that's never happened either before or since. Uh, in the Champions League era. Um, And you look at what it had taken those teams to get there. Monaco coming from 4-2 down to beat the Real Madrid of Figo, Ronaldo and Zidane uh, in the quarterfinals. Deportivo. Ronaldo as well. The original Ronaldo. Deportivo, like Arunia, coming from 4-1 down to beat that fantastic Milan team of Kaká and Pirlo and Shevchenko. Um, And certainly the perspective in, in this country was that things are opening up here for Chelsea because I don't think, despite what Porto had done to United and, and despite the impressive results that the other teams had had in the quarterfinals, there was a feeling that, you know, this could be Chelsea's year. Well, absolutely, because who had Chelsea knocked out in the previous round? Uh, they'd knocked out Arsenal. Invincibles. And, yeah, and I mean, that was, I mean, Arsenal obviously got to the final a couple of years later, but this probably was the opportunity for Arsenal in such an open competition to win it. You know, obviously that's the thing Wenger missed out on in his career and that, that Wayne Bridge goal was, uh, was the killer, really. Wayne Bridge, Ida Good Jonsson, it's Bridge, it's in! It's Chelsea's night! It's Wayne Bridge with just three minutes left to play! Wow. Even those words sound like they come from another world now. Um, So it is Porto against Deportivo, and I guess if you were going to do the old Siri, show me a typical Mourinho two-legged tie, it would be this one, wouldn't it? Yeah, nil-nil at home, and then at this point, the Riathor. Deportivo Stadium was considered one of the most difficult places to go because they had an incredible home record there. And Porto, you know, once again, play this incredible offside trap that seems to work even when it doesn't technically work. And they score a lone goal through Derlai with a penalty. And uh, yeah, they defended really, really well in this uh, in this tie. There was another good bit of research I found where Mourinho said to Deco in the first leg, Maro Silva's one booking away from... Uh, missing the second leg so what I want you to do is every time you get the ball try and dribble past him get him booked (laughs) and in the end he actually got booked for a foul on someone else Um, but it goes to show that's the level of you know Mourinho was always looking to kind of expose the weaknesses of the of the opposition and and yeah that kind of attention to detail I think is maybe not something players were used to yeah because I mean yeah there, there were managers before Mourinho who did work on levels of detail but there's also a kind of prevailing sense of we'll let them worry about us and mm. that kind of thing so Mourinho was fascinating on that level by this point he, he's got a little bit of uh, of not so much good fortune but um, he's wrapped up the domestic title by this stage hasn't he Yes. So the the interesting thing about this was uh, it was not unusual for Porto to win the uh, 
to win the title in Portugal, of course. But what was interesting was the way they did it, because I think if you go back over the last, uh, the previous 10 years in the Portuguese league, the Portuguese title winners had always scored more goals than that Porto that season, but they'd also always conceded more goals. So it's not necessarily that they were a defensive team, because I don't think they were in general. But I think Mourinho had to shift the mentality of the side overall, because the classic problem you see for a side from Portugal is that Week in, week out, they play open, expansive, aggressive football and then they play big boys in the Champions League and they're not accustomed to playing in a different way. And I think Mourinho was, to a certain extent, tempering his approach in domestic games to prepare them for how they were going to have to play against bigger sides uh, in European competition. They weren't able to complete the treble, though. No, they lost to Benfica in the uh, in the final of the Portuguese Cup. The interesting thing here is that Mourinho deliberately played a completely different way in the Portuguese Cup final because he didn't want Didier Deschamps to scout his side, work out how they were going to play and formulate an approach. So I think he played the other two strikers. He completely rotated his attackers. Um, again, attention to detail, obsessed with opposition scouting and not letting the opposition scout him. It's absolutely outstanding. And and then, of course, it is the European Cup final. It's Porto against Monaco, who have turned over Chelsea in the game that would come to define Ranieri as Chelsea manager. Uh, it's out in Gelsenkirchen and two very young managers, Mourinho and Deschamps. And if you believe the stories at the time, Abramovich was sat in his yacht basically going, whichever one wins, hire him. Yeah, Mourinho uh, is 41 at the time. Deschamps only 35. Uh, he's in his first managerial role, having retired three years previously. And he took Monaco to the French League Cup in the 02-03 season, so the previous season. They'd finished just behind Lyon in the title race that year as well. And this Champions League campaign is the first sign that we see, despite that early success, that Deschamps might have what it takes to go on and become one of the world's leading coaches. They top their group, they get past Lokomotiv Moscow, Real Madrid and Chelsea. And I think without that run, I'm not sure Deschamps would have then got the opportunities that, that he got as a coach, you know, notably going to Juventus, for example, quite as quickly as he did. Of course, World Cup winner now. Mm. Mm, turned out all right. Uh, the final itself, it's its pretty tame until Porto go ahead out of the blue. Yeah, I mean, Monaco started strongly and then Ludovic Juli goes off injured and he was, I think, their key player and that was a real blow. And from then, they never really reformatted the side and Porto gradually pushed forward. And then, yeah, there was this goal out of nothing really from uh, Carlos Alberto, I think with 19 at the time. Really promising wonder kid who basically never really made it. I think scored a total of about... 30 or 40 goals in his career one of which was an opener in Champions League final brilliant in this game and then no one really ever saw him again also one of the last players who I remember wearing the Robbie Fowler style nose strips <laughs> oh, <laughs> big yes. fan of those <laughs> oh, I don't see him so much these days bless him good for stopping snoring though oh really which, Interesting. which would have been useful for later Mourinho songs <laughs> that's another story uh, the second goal is the, the killer though and that shows the brilliance of Deco Tom Yes, lovely goal. Um, so we're about uh, 70 minutes in uh, and Dmitry Elenichev uh, has been brought on as a substitute by Mourinho uh, with about half an hour to go. He gets away down the left. There's quite a lot of space now in the Monaco half because they are, they're pushing up quite a lot. Elenichev cuts the ball back to Deco and he opens himself out. You think he's going to steer it around Flavio Roma, the Monaco goalkeeper, but he actually cuts it into the near post. A you know, really clever finish. The sort of thing you see quite a lot these days. It's something that strikers and, and forward players seem to seem to quite like doing. You you make it look as if you're going to 
you're going to do a Thierry Henry and put it bottom right and you just cut across the ball at the last minute and put it the other way. But at the time, I remember when that goal was scored, it wasn't it wasn't a finish you saw quite as often. Um, and it was classic Deco to, to do something slightly unexpected. Uh, and as ever with Deco, you know, something that, that really oozed finesse. On the basis of that goal, my school football team, uh, in fact my college football team, for the next couple of years, if we were in a position on the edge of the box and wanted to cut back, we'd just shout Deco. It just became the shorthand. <laughs> started out as I'm in the Deco zone or something and then gradually just became Deco. So someone went down the flank, just shout Deco. And then inevitably they'd kind of play across and the ball get cleared. But the thought was there. the intention was there, yeah. The tendrils of influence <laughs> far and wide from Mourinho all the way to your college team. And Mourinho barely waits around for the trophy. Yeah, there's conflicting reports on this. There was some reports that he, uh, there were security concerns and threats had been made about the safety of his family and stuff on the game. So he's clearly distracted, whether it's through uh, that or whether it's through the fact he knows he's off. Um, course he's won two european cups and he resigns from porto and inter after both of them um so he doesn't stay around long once he's once he's won it but uh yeah it was a strange strange kind of celebration really where he's uh you know the only one looking quite glum amongst players who are achieving obviously the peak of their career you think anyone sort of said to him you know uh, we've done brilliantly how do we kick on for next season he's like yeah i wouldn't bother (laughs) don't worry about that (laughs) and because the talk of course in this country at the time was he was going to come to England. Was he going to go to Liverpool or Chelsea? I mean, there's a good chance. When you look back at the reports, there's a good chance that if Mourinho had gone to Liverpool, then Benitez would have gone to Chelsea. Uh, wow. They were almost kind of interchangeable at that point. They were the two up-and-coming managers. Tom, how does that Porto side stand up against Mourinho's other great sides? And there are so many. I know we take the mickey out of him, but the first Chelsea side is brilliant. The Inter side is brilliant. Um, he stops Guardiola's Barcelona when he's at Madrid. And then, of course, he wins a title again with Chelsea. A more you know, prosaic sort of title. But he, he's had a few, hasn't he? Yeah, and I think you look at this Porto side, and what, as, as we were saying earlier, you know, a lot of these players are now household names. But prior to that season, prior to that game against Monaco, they weren't. You look at what Mourinho went on to achieve. I think the treble that he won with Inter, that remains his masterpiece. I think the fact that he did it by eliminating Pep Guardiola's Barcelona at their absolute peak with that famous rearguard action at Camp Nou. I mean, that, I think, above anything, is Mourinho's finest achievement. But when you look at the resources at his disposal, the fact that he came out of absolutely nowhere and did it with this unheralded group of players, I think there's an argument for saying that what he did with Porto remains the most impressive of of all the things that he's won. Um, He's one of the few managers who's done those sort of two strands of success the, uh, the, there are managers who are very good with big teams when they've got money and there are managers who are very good at building clubs up from nothing and working in any circumstances Mourinho is one of the few who's done both um, particularly with Liera at the beginning of his career which is still an outstanding achievement and, and then this as well in a way he sort of defended himself forever against the accusation he's just a checkbook manager when we talk about the legacy of Mourinho and Porto what is it? Well I think I mean at the time they were considered almost hand in hand with what happened a month or, or six weeks later, which was Greece winning Euro uh, 2004. Two massive underdog triumphs. Both were seen as being very defensive sides. I think that was only really true for Porto in the semis and the final. There was a wave of defensive football after this and, and Mourinho was certainly not blameless in terms of he went to Chelsea. He played a much more defensive counter-attacking style um, and it kind of prompted four years, I would say, of broadly defensive football until 
Guardiola came along in, in 2008 and, and uh, Spain won the European Championships and then people started playing possession football and that was all the rage. But yeah, at this point, you know, European ties were defensive and cagey and counter-attacking and we were accustomed to semi-finals having one or two goals in over 180 minutes. It's a very different situation from, you know, the amazing comebacks we see these days. And if you like that sort of uh, stuff, long sweeping chapters about the development of football and the trends and the empires that rose and the empires that fell, you'll really enjoy Zonal Marking, The Making of Modern European Football. That is all we've got time for this week. And that book is out now in a lovely hardback. It will look great on your bookshelves. It's also available on ebook and audiobook too. Join us next time. We'll be joined by Alvaro Romeo. And we'll be discussing Spain's incredible hat-trick of international triumphs. <laughs>